Well, good morning. And uh, glad, to, glad to be here with you again this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in a series called Life is Short. Because it is. And uh, Solomon gives us a lot of wisdom in his writing in the book of Ecclesiastes toward that end. Um, hey, a couple things before we get going. Just a reminder, uh, be praying for Dan. And there were 18 students with Pastor Dan up at... Uh, the Impact Retreat, just uh, young, uh, I think, fifth and sixth grade students. So that's exciting. They're in Michigan. They'll be back this evening. And uh, if you have one of those and you need to come pick them up, you need to come pick them up. All right? They've been with them all weekend. So make sure you come pick them up. And I think they're going to be back. You guys probably know better than me, parents, but I feel like it, it was between 4 and 5 o'clock this evening. I'm not exactly sure. Um, also, uh, remind you, uh, if you're a parent or grandparent, next Saturday... Uh, there's a parenting conference, I should say, this Saturday, and you can sign up online. Uh, Hannah and I are planning to attend. Uh, it's wawaseebible.com backslash parenting. And if you're a parent, a grandparent, uh, just some really practical teaching from God's word on parenting. And uh, it's by a guy, named, uh, guy by the name of Paul Tripp, uh, has written a fantastic number of fantastic books on parenting that I'd highly, highly recommend. And um, yeah, so... Would love for you to join us. The cost is $10, and that includes your lunch. So hopefully you'll be here on Saturday. But like I said, we're in a series called Life is Short. And uh, we've been just looking at the brevity of life. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, at the end of his life. And Solomon is an, is an interesting and really pretty amazing guy because second to Jesus Christ, he walked the earth with more wisdom than any other human being ever. In fact, God gave him the opportunity to ask for whatever he would like. And Solomon said, uh, Lord, after thinking about it, give me wisdom to know how to rule your people and care for people and live well. God was pleased with that request, so he gave Solomon not only wisdom, but all kinds of wealth. Like wealth that you couldn't imagine, like Scrooge McDuck sur surfing on his pile of gold sort of wealth. That was Solomon, right? I mean, he had all kinds of wealth and, and really everything he could ever want under the sun or that you or I could ever want. And Solomon, at the end of his life, looks back on his life and regrets uh, a lot of it. Because he started his life really well where he was obeying God and following God and, and honoring him, but over time, we read that Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord because of uh, all the women in his life. And ladies, that's not an, uh, an offense to you, I hope. But Solomon disobeyed the Lord and married women who didn't believe in the same God. And it drew his heart after their gods. In fact, uh, uh, 700 uh, wives and 300 concubines, um, it, he had a different woman every night. And it drew his heart away from the Lord. To where at the end of his life, uh, Solomon finds himself having actually not only built God's temple, but built uh, false places of worship to these false gods, some of which uh, uh, likely included child sacrifice, so maybe he's even a murderer. And you get to the end of his life, and he looks back, and he goes, it's all, everything under the sun, it's all pointless. He's like, I've had every pleasure, every imaginable thing I could ever want, all the wealth in the world, all the wisdom, and it's all meaningless. Well, Solomon, in saying that, is talking about life lived apart from God. 
life under the sun. This life is what Solomon's referring to. And he says, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity when you carry things out to their logical conclusion. And that's what he does multiple times. And it's going to be more of the same today. So let me pray. And then we're going to jump in and we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter eight this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us and your goodness. Um, Lord, thanks for Solomon. Thanks for his wisdom. Uh, Thanks for his example, both good and bad. Help us to learn from it and to pay heed to uh, the wisdom with which he writes. Um, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you use me, even though I'm flawed and sinful. I pray um, that you would maybe even teach me as I teach and uh, continue to work in my heart on these matters. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects, and uh, he would love to discourage us and keep our eyes on this life under the sun. But instead, Lord, would you uh, turn our eyes to that which is above the sun vertically towards Jesus? Teach us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Solomon is writing, and he writes this um, in verse 9. I have thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun. By the way, uh, you're not going to have the text probably on the screen this morning. We just had some technical stuff, and there was one big bottleneck actually this morning, which was me. I didn't get my uh, thumb drive down here in time uh, instead of transferring it over the network. So bear with me. Yeah, yeah? All right. Life is short, and so will this sermon be then, evidently. (laughs) Here's what Solomon writes, though. He says... uh, I've thought, verse 9, if you want to read along in chapter 8, I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. I've thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun. That phrase comes up, we've said it multiple times, but it comes up about 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's referring to this life, everything he can see. This life is the life under the sun. And he describes it like this. He says, where people have the power to hurt each other. Have you noticed that people in this life can hurt one another? That you've probably been hurt by people and you've probably hurt people. And what's curious to me is that sometimes the the people who are hurting the most, you ever heard that phrase? Hurt people hurt people? Generally speaking, the people who are hurting the most are the ones who hurt others the most. And the cure for them, Solomon is going to tell us, the cure for all of this, for getting past life under the sun, is to look above the sun, to look to Jesus Christ. And if, so if that's you, if you're hurting, let me just commend to you uh, to choose joy and to choose Jesus Christ. But here's Solomon's conclusion about this life under the sun where people hurt one another. Life is not fair. There's your first fill-in. Life is not fair. Have you noticed that life isn't fair? Have you? Your your wealth isn't fair. Taxes aren't fair necessarily, right? I mean, your, your looks aren't fair. No one is, it's not fair that everyone's not as good looking and as wealthy as Pastor Kirk. Wouldn't you agree? Annette agrees. It's not fair. It's simply not fair. Talent. Have you ever thought it's not fair that some people can, can run incredibly fast and other people run incredibly slow? If you're one of those people who run incredibly slow, so I guess I'm confessing that. That's me. 
Have you ever noticed even talent, maybe it's not athletic talent, but it's talent in the arts or in music or in speaking or in finance or in whatever else? Or uh, how about a metabolism? Metabolism is not a fair concept. <laughs> that a teenage boy can go eat whatever he wants five times and lose weight. But as soon as you hit about 30, your metabolism clicks off and then it's not fair anymore, is it? It's like a switch. Or maybe it's not metabolism, maybe it's hair. You realize having hair, it's not fair. All kinds of things we could go on and on. Life isn't fair. Sickness, health are not fair. Promotions sometimes are not fair. Family sometimes is not fair. Life is not fair. Would you agree? Not fair, we cry. Solomon certainly noticed this, and he noticed a few things. He noticed, number one, that good things happen to bad people. That's not fair. The psalmist writes it like this, that why do the wicked prosper? Everywhere I look, the wicked are prospering, he says in Psalm 73, verse 7. I, in fact, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. He goes on later in, in Psalm 73, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches just multiply. How's that fair? Solomon notices it. If you look with me in chapter 8, verse 10, he says, I've seen wicked people buried with honor. In other words, have you ever noticed that sometimes some of the most wicked people, they live a wicked life and do all kinds of horrible, awful, bad things, and yet at the end of their life, they have a great, wonderful, glorious funeral where all kinds of good things that aren't true about them are said about them. Have you noticed that? Solomon says that it's not fair. They're, they're buried with honor. They were the very ones who frequented the temple. And in saying that, he's, he's saying that they did so hypocritically. And now they're praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. That's not fair. He says it's meaningless. It's meaningless. See, often it seems like the wicked can simply do whatever they please. They, in fact, in some cases, sometimes some of the most evil people and bad people uh, have the most nice things said about them, get the most benefits in life, live the longest, maybe even uh, serve in a church somewhere, and then they die and everything. How's that fair? How's it fair? They get praised in the same places, Solomon says, that they did their wickedness when they should have been being rebuked. They live a long life. Nice things are said about them that aren't even true. Do you agree then that this aspect of life, do you agree with Solomon, is just meaningless? Like what's the point, in other words, is what he's saying. And what he's going to go on to conclude is if that's true, like under the sun, the wicked seem to prosper. So why in the world would I choose to live a life that's honoring to God? Why don't I just live a wicked life? It seems to go better for the wicked than it does for the just. Anyway, what's the point? Why should I fear God? See, he goes, when a crime, verse 11, he says, is not punished quickly, people feel that it's safe to do wrong. When a crime is not punished quickly. So he's giving us a little bit of insight here to where he's actually going. He, it's not that their crimes are not going to be punished. He just says they're not punished quickly. And when a crime is not punished quickly, people take that as license to just go ahead and do whatever they want, right? I mean, think about it. Would your life be any different? Now, be honest with yourself here, okay? Or would you live your life different? Imagine in the world there were, uh, there were no police officers. There were no prisons anywhere. 
There was uh, no consequence for any decision you made. Would you live your life differently? I bet you would. Because if I'm honest, in my own heart, I think I would. And the reality is that when our, when our eyes are fixed under the sun, Solomon says, it appears as if these things go unpunished, that there, there is no judge, that there is nothing that's going to be made right. And so as I look at it, it's meaningless. So like, why, why do I even live this life? Why don't I just live like the wicked? Their life seems to go better. Well, the reality is that these crimes will be punished, right? God is just patient in bringing judgment. So while good things happen to bad people, that's part of God's common grace. See, God's grace, you can think of it in two pieces. There's his common grace where he gives good things to everyone, right? The sun shines, the rain falls, plants grow. There's common grace to everybody, air to breathe. But there's also a revealed grace in which people trust in Jesus Christ. But everyone, whether they've trusted in Jesus or not, receives this common grace of God. And he does that so that people might recognize him and turn to him in repentance and receive his revealed grace in Jesus. See, Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. See, God isn't just not judging things that that ought to be judged. He's delaying that judgment. The book of Romans talks about this. Paul does that sometimes in our feeling safe to do wrong, all all that people are doing is they're storing up wrath for themselves. He says, do you, chapter two, verse, starting in verse three of Romans, do you suppose You who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repent? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, what Paul's saying here is that uh, if, if you're a bad person and good things seem to be happening to you and so you don't care and you continue to do these bad things and sin and do wickedness, uh, you aren't getting away with it. All you're doing is you're adding a rock to the pile of your judgment. And wrath is being stored up. And that wrath will be, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, This is a hard thing to say, but it's true. This wrath will be poured out on you. You have a choice. You can either, see, it was also poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross for anyone who would trust him and believe in him. But for those who don't, God's delaying judgment so that you might turn to him yet. And and these rocks are just piling up and it's getting to be a bigger and bigger and bigger pile every day until you repent. And it's either going to be used to to crush you, or you can accept the fact that, that God would, would be willing because he loves you to let that fall upon Jesus Christ and have his wrath be satisfied in him on the cross. See, good things happen to bad people, but that isn't freedom just to do whatever we want. Verse 14, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit in chapter eight, he says, and this is not all that's meaningless in our world. 
See, the wicked are often treated as though they were good. He says also, though, in this life, good people are often treated as though they're wicked. See, not only do good things happen to bad people, but bad things happen to good people. Have you noticed that one? I would imagine, uh, knowing many of you, this is the one you would resonate with more. Because I know many of you who are very good people, yet awful things have happened and come upon your life. Painful and hard things. And how do you reconcile that? How, how is it that God allows good to happen to the wicked and bad to happen to the righteous? Well, number one, you have to recognize that this is under the sun, that this life is very short and eternity is a long time. And God's gonna make these things right. He promises to, and he will. And so we can endure for a short time. Paul says that, in fact, our sufferings in this life pale in comparison, that you can't even compare them, he says, to the glory that awaits us. So he encourages us to endure. We need to encourage one another in that too. And, but this life is temporary. See, the, the, you want examples of, of bad things that happen to good people? The biggest one, we mentioned him a few weeks ago, is Job. And really, he's not the biggest one. The biggest one is Jesus, right? In terms of bad things happening to a good person. Jesus Christ, though he never sinned, he never deceived anyone, Peter wrote, yet he died on the cross for our sin. But, but think about Job. In Job chapter 1, uh, Job's life, I think I told you, I, I kind of say this a lot or think of it like this way, his, his life's a country song. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's house with this news. Now Job, like Solomon, was incredibly wealthy. God had blessed his socks off. He had uh, more wealth than, than you could imagine. Unbelievable wealth. And a great family, he had everything going for him. And it says, uh, one day, while they were feasting, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Uh, Job, your oxen, maybe I imagine him out of breath running up. Your oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals, they killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And Job's starting to process that, and it says, while he was still speaking, in verse 16, another messenger arrived with this news. Job, 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 the fire of God has fallen from heaven and he's burned up, it's burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the, I'm the only one left to make it back to you to tell you about it. You've, you've lost everything there. So Job starts to process both of these calamities when, while he was still speaking, the third messenger arrived with this news. Job, three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed all of your servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a fourth arrived with this news. Job, your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Job's like, no, come on. I can handle the rest, but my family... Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed. All your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you, Job. Can you imagine? Now, sometimes we read that and we detach ourselves. And we're like, oh, yeah, Job lost this, and then he lost this, and then he lost this. But, you know, Job was a cool Bible guy, and he obeyed God, and everything went good for him in the end. He got it all back, right? Because he's a superhero Christian. Right? 
No, 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 put yourself in Job's spot. This is real life, friends. These are real people, real things that happened to them. Job lost everything, including his family. Just, just feel that for a second. Bad things happen to good people. So, so what do you do with that? Life isn't fair. What do you do with that? You know, there's not a good explanation for it entirely. The, the simple one and the, the trite one, the true one, is that because we've sinned, this world is incredibly messed up. And so we can expect trouble in this life. But Jesus has come to redeem us and we trust him. He's gonna fix everything one day and this will all be done. There'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more sickness, no more pain. That will be fantastic. No more elections, no more political ads on TV. Yeah, amen. Because <laughs> Jesus isn't elected. He just kind of comes and says, hey, I'm king, bow down. And then everybody does it. And but won't that be good? Now, in terms of why do these bad things happen, I don't know. But I do know in part that God allows these things so that we would trust him. So that we might look towards his goodness and trust him for salvation. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, play the long game and look towards eternity and his goodness. As we sang this morning, even when it seems the answer is no, God is good all of the time. And it's true. Now, in terms of life not being fair, uh, I'm kind of glad life isn't fair. Because if everything, or or maybe better said, I'm kind of glad God isn't fair. Because if he was fair, what would happen to me? My sin would be punished by, on who? Where would God's wrath fall? On me. But by God's grace, he puts it on Jesus Christ. He's just, but I think that's a good argument to say that God probably and really isn't necessarily fair, and that's for our benefit. Jesus tells a parable, um, acknowledging this, acknowledging his sovereignty. He says, for the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 20 is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage, and he sent them out to work. And then it says, throughout the day, more people showed up to work. And he's like, okay, yeah, you can work for me. You know, later in the afternoon, okay, yeah, you can work for me. And he gets to the end of the day and he starts paying everybody. And the one who showed up first, he pays him his due wage for the whole day. The guy who showed up like three hours later pays him the same amount for the whole day. Wait a second. The guy who showed up like an hour before quitting time got his check. And what was it made out for? The same amount as the other guys. How's that fair? He didn't, he didn't work. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people only worked one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all the day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I have not been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. It's God's sovereignty. He's in control. Is it against the law for me to do what I want to with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last will be f- last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Jesus even reminds us that in the end, things are going to be made right. The last will be first, the first will be last. Trust him, he's gonna take care of it. 
Somehow get your eyes above the sun, above the clouds, and trust Jesus Christ. See, the wise person knows that God is a judge, that he is going to judge all of these things in the end, but the fool denies it. In this world, it looks like the fool's right, but it's just an illusion. And in the end, Jesus is going to fix everything. That's the good news. Justice eventually comes. See, life is not fair. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. But God is good. That's your next fill in there. God is good. You might just write that big and italic and bold. He is good. See, in Isaiah, now in terms of making sense of all this, in Isaiah, God revealed to us that his ways are above our ways. They're beyond us. In Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 8, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I can't make sense of all of these things entirely or perfectly. I simply have to trust what I know to be true about God, and that is the fact that he is good, even in the midst of a world where things are not fair. He is good. See, his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense, and I'm glad it doesn't make sense because then he wouldn't be much of a god, would he? (laughs) But again, it's back to that analogy of the loom. You look at a, a big tapestry being woven, and when you look at it from this side, it's a huge mess. There's strings hanging everywhere, and it's, it makes no sense. But when you get up above and you look down, you see the beautiful tapestry that's being woven. Life under the sun is meaningless. Solomon's right, but God is good. See, earlier to this, he, Isaiah wrote, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he will abundant, for he will abundantly pardon. See, Solomon uh, agrees with this when he's writing in Ecclesiastes. If you look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 8, he says, See, but even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, in other words, even, even though life is unfair, I know that those who fear God will be better off. That's what he writes. I know that those who fear God will be better off. Maybe not better off this week, but I'm telling you better off for eternity, and eternity is a long time. Would you agree? He says the wicked will not prosper, meaning in the end, for they do not fear God. Verse 13, he continues, he says, their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. Proverbs 10, verse 7 says something similar. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. See, uh, even though life's not fair, God is good. He is good, friends. He is. You have to trust that. You've got to believe that. Because it's true. And unless you do, then you come to the same conclusion Solomon does, that everything under the sun is vanity and meaningless. And what a waste of time. See, Job, remember Job? Lost everything? 
lost, his, lost all of his wealth, lost his family and his children. Check out Job's response. I stopped reading in verse 19, but here's what it says in verse 20. This is chapter 1 of Job. Job stood up and he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. Now, for you and I, you're probably not going to tear your clothes, but it would just think of just incredible anguish. That was an expression of anguish at that time. And Job, he tears his clothes and he shaves his head. He falls to the ground in worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. So praise the name of the Lord. I don't think he probably said that with a smile on his face either, by the way. It was probably through his tears. And in all of this, verse 22, Job did not sin by blaming God. Uh, there's some phenomenal tr- uh, ways to learn this truth in the book of Job and from his example. In chapter 13, verse 5, or verse 15, excuse me, it says, Though he slay me, I will still hope in him. In, in chapter 23, verse 10, one of my favorite promises in all of Scripture, Job says, he, For he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, because there'll be an end to this trial, I will come out as gold. So life's not fair, but friends, God is good, and you can trust him to keep those promises that though he slay you, you can hope in him. That, that though the, you're in an incredible trial right now, and if you're not in one, you either just came out of one or you're heading into one, get ready, right? That when he's done, you'll come out as gold if you trust him. Don't be like the wicked who don't fear God. It goes well for those, Solomon said, who fear God and who trust him. Hold on tight. He's your only hope. And then Solomon gives some conclusion of how we ought to live our lives. Life isn't fair, but God is good. And he concludes something very similar to what we talked about last Sunday. He says, so work hard, obey God, or obey Jesus, and enjoy life. See, here's what he says in verse 15. Um, Well, let's just work through those statements. Work hard. Solomon concludes that, our, that your toil is worthwhile, that, that God has given you work to do, and it's good for you to do it, right? In Colossians, Paul writes, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And he says the same thing to the Corinthians, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord, to his glory, whatever it is. The job you hate, the job you love, mowing the lawn, changing the diaper, do it all with a heart of thankfulness to the glory of God. Work hard. But then, at the end of that, enjoy life. He's not saying don't work hard. He is saying work hard. And he's saying, by the way, fear Jesus. Obey God. Obey the authorities that he's put in place. See, right before this, if we, would have, if we were taking more time to go to, to look at the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the first part of chapter eight is all about obeying authority. And it's all about how God uh, puts and establishes authority on this earth and it's good for us to obey them because in doing that, it's for our good. And in obeying them, we're obeying 
God. Romans talks about this as well. Jeremiah, when the the Israelites are sent into exile, uh, after being taken captive into exile in a time of war, God tells them through Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the place where I've sent you into exile because, and, and pray to the Lord for, for it on its behalf, for in its welfare is your welfare. Friends, we're in exile on this earth, right? This is a place where God has sent us and it ain't home. It's not home. But... Even in this place under the sun where life is unfair, where people hurt one another, then we ought to pray for this place where God has sent us for in its good and work for its good because in its good is our good. We're to seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord, as Micah says, right? So, so for examples, in obeying authorities, he's put in place on, on this earth, Jesus says, pay your taxes. But my taxes aren't fair. It's okay, pay them. If Jesus picked up a coin, looked at the picture of the emperor on the coin, an emperor who declared himself to be God when Jesus himself was God, and Jesus looks at that, the picture of that emperor and says, whose coin is this? And they say, the emperor. He says, well, then give to the emperor what's his. Give to Caesar what's his. Pay your taxes. If Jesus can submit to that, the one who's the ruler and authority over all, then guess who, who, who else ought to? You and I, right? Um, friends, our, our, our culture... Is, is one that's post-Christian. It's post-Christian. And if I understand the Bible correctly, it's only going to get worse as time goes on until Jesus finally comes back to make things right. By post-Christian, I mean that Christendom is dead. Do you know what I mean by that? In the sense that in this life, there's no longer any social benefit to being culturally Christian. There's no longer a cultural Christian kingdom that it, it's, it, there's a benefit to. It was dealt a death blow by World War II in Europe and it's been dealt a death blow over the last uh, 40 years in the United States as well. And we still have it a little bit here in this area, but I'm telling you, go, go to a city, go to the coast, it's dead. And uh, this is very evident right now to me in the sense that uh, the religion of cultural Christianity where um, there's benefit to being part of the church, there's this uh, social benefit in those things, it's been replaced instead of uh, with, the, with the church, it's been replaced with politics if you've been watching any TV over the last month. People have replaced church with politics. Notice I didn't say Jesus, I said church. Because 50 years ago, uh, it's, people would go to church and there'd be, be good things about being in church, but they'd never really trusted Jesus. Well, now that there's no social benefit to going to church, they're still looking for religion, but that religion has been found in politics and in the political climate of our day. It's simply been replaced. Both a religion, they're trying to earn a salvation of some sort. For instance, let's compare them. In religion, it teaches that there's a good side and a bad side, us versus them, your religion versus another religion. You're on the good guy team, your religion, right? In politics, how about this? There's a good side and a bad side. The good side is the one you're on. The bad's the one across the aisle. There's no middle ground. In religion, do this, act like this. If you don't do this, associate with these people. Associate with these people, not those people. If you, if you don't follow the rules, you become an outcast and you're shunned, right? 
That, that's religion. We don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't date the girls who do. Politics has become the same thing. You're required to live a certain way, say certain things, associate only with people who share your views. And to cross over the aisle, to engage with those opposite of you is anathema. It's forbidden and it makes you a functional leper to those in your political camp. Politics has replaced religion in America. In religion, there's a savior. There is, right? Jesus Christ. But in, the, in, in religious church, the savior actually becomes you because you do enough good things so that you're accepted. The truth of Christianity, no, Jesus is a savior, not him. But in, in politics, there's a savior too. People put their trust in men for two years, four years, or six years. And then they find a different savior when they didn't fulfill everything and make all their wildest dreams come true. Now, why did I go down this random rabbit trail? Well, friends, because Jesus does put authorities in place. And so in obeying authorities, we're obeying Jesus. We're to work hard, fear Jesus, and enjoy life. And I say this in terms of obeying Jesus because I probably didn't set it up well. I realized that this morning. However, in, in obeying Jesus and obeying authorities, what I don't want you to do is somehow in the climate that we're in in America right now with politics and everything else is somehow put your trust in men and not in Jesus Christ and somehow think that uh, if, if only the election, you know, you have so much anxiety about the election Tuesday, if that doesn't go right, everything's gonna crumble. Life isn't fair. The person you vote for might not get elected, but life will go on and God is good so work hard, obey Jesus, put your hope and your trust in him, fear him, not men, and enjoy life under the sun because one day Jesus is gonna come fix the whole mess. Isn't that fantastic? Now, in saying all that, I hope you vote Tuesday. I hope you do. But you need to know, especially if you're new here, I will never, and it will never happen so long as I'm the pastor here, ever tell you who to vote for. I will never endorse a political candidate from this stage. We will never have them come speak their political position from this stage because I never want you to think that your hope is in some man or some woman. It's in Jesus Christ. And we don't elect him. He's king. He's God. He's full of authority. And he's just going to set up shop one day. Amen? Now, that being said, go vote. Why wouldn't you vote? God gave you a great opportunity to influence the place where you live and, and to seek the good of your country and your community and your city. Be a part of it. But don't put your trust in that. And if you're angry right now with me with anything I've said, then maybe you just need to examine, is my idol one of those things or is my trust in Jesus? Yeah, yeah. See, see, Solomon says, uh, life isn't fair, but God is good. So work hard, fear Jesus. And then he says, enjoy life. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. Do you know, if you realize that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he's got it, you can calm down a little bit. Would you agree? Listen, and, and in, in saying some of those things earlier, I fall into the same trap. 
I get my eyes set on things under the sun and I worry about the future for, for my family, for my son, for our church. What's going to happen? And all this hand wringing. And then I realize, wait a second, uh, Revelation 19 through 22, those last three chapters say pretty clearly that Jesus has it. And I can calm down a little bit. I can enjoy life. If you know that God's got it, you can calm down. You have a part to play in what God's doing, but it's what he's doing. I wonder, are you enjoying life? See, here's how Solomon writes it. I really like the New Living Translation. He says, so after all of this, life isn't fair, but God is good. So I recommend having fun. You're like, wait a second, huh? Yeah, that's, I recommend having fun. Or if you have the ESV, it says, I commend joy. Because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way, when they experience some happiness along with all the hard work that God gives them, that way they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work that God gives them under the sun. He says, in my search for wisdom, in my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discovered that there's ceaseless activity day and night. I realized that no one can discover everything that God's doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. So I commend joy. I recommend having fun. I wonder, are you enjoying life? Are you joyful? If not you could be disobeying a very clear command of scripture. If you're always grumpy, always critical, always complaining, always frustrated, always frowning. If you're working so hard that you never have time to let down, and then you take pride in how busy you are, and you never step back to simply enjoy life. You may be demonstrating that you don't really believe God is sovereign, but that you trust that you are. Did you know, by the way, see, Solomon recommends having fun. Did you know the kingdom of God is going to be fun? It's going to be fun. It is. I mean, sometimes I think like the best way to describe heaven to a four-year-old is to say, do you think it'd be cool to go to Disney World? Yeah, that's kind of like heaven, only heaven's better. <laughs> right? It is. Listen, it's fun. It's fun. There's going to be joy and pleasure forevermore. At your right hand, the psalmist writes, are pleasures, Lord, forevermore. Whatever pleasures of this world, they're fleeting. You, you haven't begun to imagine or, or even conceive of what it is that God has waiting for those who love him. This world is not our home. Heaven's going to be fun. Well, why do I say that? Well, because Jesus is fun. Like, Jesus is fun? Yeah. Why do you think he kept getting invited to parties? Seriously, honestly, think about it. Why did he keep getting invited places? Because he's fun. Why did little kids like to hang out with him? Why did kids run to him? Because he's fun. Now, Jesus is incredibly serious and he's God and he's sovereign and he's powerful. But after he finishes taking care of wickedness in this world, guess what? 
Fun time. Seriously, read Revelation. Jesus is fun. And and Solomon says, so in this life, it's not fair. But God is good, so work hard. Work work at the things he's given you to do with all your might. Fear Jesus in everything. Make him first in everything. And take some time to enjoy life and practice for eternity. And practice. See, I wonder, he says, eat something good. Drink something nice. All of it's preparation for eternity. Enjoy life. Do you enjoy your life or do you endure your life? Until the end comes, friends, we should enjoy life. Eat something good, drink something nice, share some memories. This is not a denial of reality, by the way. And it's not a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Solomon, very just the verse before this, just acknowledged how messed up life is. Didn't he? He said there's incredible, he was talking about reality. The reality is life isn't fair. Good things happen to bad, thing, bad people, bad things happen to good people. Solomon is saying work hard, seek justice, fear Jesus, but enjoy your life. It's a gift from God. Do you get so upset, so angry, so disturbed by some injustice? Is that you? Calm down. Jesus has it. Close with this. G.K. Chesterton, a fantastic writer, and he wrote in his book Orthodoxy about the madman. The madman. Or the maniac, sometimes he calls them. He writes about this person who becomes so obsessed with one thing that they lose perspective on all other things. They get so obsessed with something, one thing on this earth, they, get, they lose perspective of, of other things. And they relate everything to the one thing which causes them to, be, to eventually become, you know, kind of conspiracy theorists or, or the like. And they try to pull every single thing under the sun that's unrelated together, and they only try to make sense of it in light of this one passion point. And it's the only way it makes sense in their convoluted mind. He writes this, he says... If the madman could, for one instant, become careless, he would become sane. In other words, if he could step back and enjoy life a little bit, he would become sane. He'd gain some sanity. If the madman could, uh, but, but again, it says this is rarely possible for the madman because he's not hampered, quote, he's not hampered by a sense of humor <laughs> or by charity, or the dumb certainties of experience. He's more logical for losing certain sane affections. Indeed, the common phrase for insanity in this respect is a misleading one. The man-man is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. See, the, the madman doesn't enjoy life. Just so busy working, so busy being enraged about something that he never steps back and enjoys life. And Honestly, that's the teaching of Sabbath, isn't it? Why God tells us to work six days and then take a break and enjoy a day, enjoy life. And so you can see this command to enjoy life or to choose joy either as a command or really all of God's commands. I would, I would argue maybe you ought to see them better as invitations. Now, there's still commands. We're still supposed to do them, right? So don't hear me. 
or, or hear me. I'm not saying, you know, you can just choose which commands you like and which you don't. I'm just saying see all of God's commands as an invitation. It's helpful. It's clearly a command, but it's an invitation. You know, it's an invitation to eat and drink and be joyful and to choose happiness. Each command is an invitation towards God's goodness and his best for us. When he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. See, I mean, think about that. The the whole eat, drink, joy, happiness. Sadly, Christianity is not very often in our culture labeled by these things, is it? But Jesus was. (laughs) Right? He was. He was labeled by these things. He was called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Now, he wasn't a drunkard or a glutton. But people enjoyed being with him because he was okay with good eating and Drinking and enjoying life and having some fun along the way. That's why so many people wanted to be with him all the time. And that's why some of us, including myself, want to be with him forever. It's an invitation, friends. It's an invitation. See, maybe the best thing you can do this week, if you find yourself anxious about something or uh, angry about something or just not enjoying life at all, maybe the best thing you can do this week is to find some time Carve it out and go do something you enjoy and enjoy life and enjoy God in the process, recognizing that he's in control and that he's got it. Your troubles will be there tomorrow still. Don't worry, they will. So maybe today you can find some time to relax, enjoy life and practice for heaven. Some some people are so dour and so serious that they accomplish a lot, but they live very little. And Solomon tells us, in light of God's grace, enjoy your life. Amen? Let me pray. Uh, We're gonna sing and call it a morning. Father, uh, life's not fair. It's not. There's so many things that just don't make sense to us, to me. Um, Lord, the ways that, that good things happen to bad people, that bad things happen to good people. We've all experienced these things, Lord. Jesus, you experienced it on the cross. But even in the midst of our pain and in the midst of a life that, that might be even crumbling all around us, Lord, we can trust in the fact that you are good. You are who you say you are. Jesus, for those who've never trusted you, I pray that today might be the day that they recognize that. And instead of... Uh, uh, piling up rocks on that pile of wrath for themselves. Instead, they would would turn to you in your kindness and in your grace and turn to you in repentance, knowing that you would take them and make them your own because you're good. And so, Lord, because you're good and because there's more to this life than what we see under the sun, help us to work hard at what you've given us to do. Help us to seek justice in the places where you've sent us. Help us to obey Jesus and keep him first in everything but then encourage us and help us to enjoy the life that you've graciously given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.